The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We've been walking through the Gospel of Luke to gain a face-to-face encounter with the real Jesus, and Luke has done his research. He's talked to those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ from the beginning and put together an orderly account so that we might know the certainty of the things with which we are being taught. Now, we've already read about the angel's announcement of two babies, John born to Elizabeth and Zechariah, and Jesus born to the Virgin Mary. By chapter 3, the babies have grown up. Jesus is not yet been revealed as king, but John is now a well-known prophet. Large crowds are making their way into the wilderness to hear him preach. And we must remember that God's prophets have been silent for 300 years The last prophet of God to speak was Malachi, who closed out the Old Testament. But now that silence has been broken, and John picks up where Malachi left off. John begins his prophetic ministry in the wilderness, preaching a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as we walk through Luke 3 this morning, we'll learn a lot about what real repentance is and what it is not. So follow along as I read from chapter 3 in Luke, verses 1 through 18. And if you're following along in the Bible, it's page 858 in the Bibles we offer in the pew. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Idiorea, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of, the, of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And to the crowds, and the crowds asked him, well, what then shall we do? And he answered them, 
Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Here we see John is preaching good news. And this good news was for all those who sincerely repented. And that is what we will focus on for the majority of our time this morning, looking at John's message of repentance and answering the question, what is real repentance? And as we'll see when we walk through this passage, we'll see repentance has a direction, a source, a fruit, and a promise. In verses 1 through 3, we're reminded that we're reading real history, not myth or legend. What we have here is a real prophet preaching a very real message of repentance for a very real forgiveness of sins. He said so in verse 3, where he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming baptism, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so we're not talking about a make-believe prophet or a metaphorical repentance. This is not legend. We're not talking about the mythical gods of the Greeks and the Romans. But we're talking about the real God of history who has come in the person of Jesus Christ as king of all. Now, as we compare what Luke says in other, to other ancient sources, we can determine that John's ministry began somewhere between the years 26 and 29 AD, most likely 27 AD, during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Caiaphas held the high office or held the office of high priest while his father-in-law Annas, a former high priest, was still called by that name, just as we still call former presidents Mr. President. Now Luke mentions Lysanias here, and that's of a special significance because secular and liberal scholars used to say that it was a mistake for Lysanias ruled 60 years earlier. However, ancient inscriptions have since proven that there was a second Lysanias, possibly a descendant of the first, that ruled as tetrarch over over Abilene at the time of Jesus. And so we're talking about reality, a real God, a real prophet of God, who prepares the way not just for any king, but for the king of all glory and power. And Luke clarifies this by framing John's message as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy given hundreds of years earlier in Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse 5, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. So according to Luke, 
John's voice is Isaiah's voice, it's foretold, would cry out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Luke's point is clear. Jesus is the promised one, the long-expected one. He's not just any king. He's the king of kings. He's the king of all glory and all power. And therefore, Jesus is worthy of the highest honor and the most celebrated welcome. Now, Dr. Riken tells us that in ancient days, when an emperor was about to visit a city, the citizens would be required to prepare a well-constructed approach road along which he could advance with due pomp and dignity on his way into a city. Today, we might roll out the red carpet, right? And that's what he's talking about, about lowering the mountains and raising up the valleys. The idea is similar to that red carpet idea, but the honor is much greater for this king. To prepare for this king's coming, we must get ready and give him the greatest honor And one of the ways we do that is by sincerely repenting, to turn from ourself toward this king. Because repentance always has a Godward direction. Real repentance means turning back to the real God, not the idols that we make in our own image, not the man-made constructs that are easy to manipulate deities, but, but repentance means turning back to the God in whose image we are made and dealing with the one who created the universe, who is beyond our manipulations. The counterfeit of repentance is penance. And it's always manward in its direction. It focuses on what man sees and feels in himself. And it always leads to discouragement, depression, and eventually death. It's driven by man's pride and man's rituals and man's superstitions. But real repentance is God-centered and it leads to joy and life. Dr. Jack Miller illustrated the difference between God-centered repentance that's directed toward God and man-centered repentance by comparing Mark Twain's life with the experience of men in the Bible like Isaiah and Job. He writes that Mark Twain recalled the repentances of his youth, which were powerfully stimulated by every public tragedy that occurred in his hometown. His nights were filled with terror, especially after the killing of a man named Smar on a noonday in the streets of Hannibal. Twain recalls how some thoughtful idiot placed a great family Bible spread open on the profane old man's breast. Mark Twain was plagued by the memory of that awful scene. And often in his dreams, Twain would gasp and struggle for breath under the crush of that vast book as though he were in Smar's place. Twain later wrote, Those were awful nights, nights of despair, nights charred with bitterness of death. I recognized the warning and repented, repented and begged, begged like a coward, begged like a dog. Now Jack Miller writes that it might seem that Mark Twain was experiencing genuine repentance. He certainly was sensitive to his own moral rottenness, but he was only sorry for himself, not sorry for his sin against a holy and loving God. And his confession of depravity was motivated principally by self-pity, which became the basis of Twain's bitter atheism later in life. And as Jack Miller shows, Twain's confession of sin was a, 
a thinly disguised criticism for God, for after all, God made human nature what it is. The man doing penance, man-centered, is always focused on what he can do and how cruddy he feels. And this is counterfeit to real repentance because it lives in self-pity and becomes convinced that in penance, if there's any forgiving to do, he must forgive God for making him such a rotten sinner. Contrast this to Isaiah where we learn that the essence of repentance is to see God and be undone. Isaiah confessed, Woe is me, I am undone. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was not half guilty or half lost. He was completely undone. And Job was silenced and repented in dust and ashes. See, each man saw the hardness of his own heart, his arrogance and unbelief and failure to give God glory. And each repented of his pride, which is the basis of self-pity. And one real meeting with the living God, Jack Miller says, puts self-pity to rest. You don't argue with holy fire. You submit to it. See, repentance has a direction away from the self. The self is undone. Repentance turns from self-trust, self-justification, self-effort, self-pity, and it turns to God. And it trusts God, surrenders to what only God can do. And so that leads to our next point. Not only does repentance have a direction away from man to God, repentance has a source. Look at verse 6. When the king comes, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Salvation won by God, not man. Recall what Jesus' name means. It means God saves. And real repentance being inseparable from faith is a gift of God. In other words, it depends on God's renewal, God's softening, not man's effort or sincerity. See, as long as man looks within himself, remaining dead in sin, he has no hope. No amount of discipline or study or moral effort or religious diligence can get the job done. And he knows it in his heart which is why the religious man is ever insecure, for he knows he's rotten at the root. But graft him into a savior, and he's given a new heart, and he's granted repentance unto life. Jack Miller continues, the truly repentant sinner has discovered through the renewing work of the Holy Spirit that all his doing is full of sin. His every attempt at self-justification, his self-despising, his bartering with God is vanity. But now, because he has come undone, he turns from his sinful doing and trusts in what Christ has done. This is the essence of real repentance. The source of real repentance is the regenerative power of God, Janet Hagberg, who grew up in a conservative church, faced various trials and suffering and turned agnostic for about a decade of her life, experimenting with New Age mysticism and secular psychology before returning to her Christian faith. She describes a stage in the life of faith called the wall. In her book called The Critical Journey, she writes, the wall represents our will meeting God's will face to face. And we decide anew whether we are 
willing to surrender and let God direct our lives, let God be God. And although we may deeply desire to give our will over to God and even believe that we are doing so, in truth, we are trying to deal with the wall in the same way we've gotten through life, on the strength of our own will or gifts. We try everything we can to scale it, circumvent it, burrow underneath it, leap over it, or simply ignore it. But the wall remains. She continues, The mystery of the whole journey of faith, however, is a deep sense of God working in us in the wall experience. And it becomes apparent that we cannot go through the wall by ourselves. We need God to lead us to break through. Otherwise, our will would be in charge. And even approaching the wall is uncomfortable because we feel both a pending loss and a great longing for new life, healing, or meaning. We bring anticipation and dread. Have you ever been in a season of life like that where you're facing the wall? You're suspicious of what God is asking you to repent of. Maybe you know very clearly, you are 100% sure, but try as you might to rid yourself of your addiction and your idolatry and the things you turn to other than God. You just can't let go. What does this mean? If you want to see and experience real repentance, whether for yourself or for loved ones, you need the Lord's help. And we only get it as we prepare for the king's coming and remembering he is the one who saves. Verse 6, all flesh shall see the salvation of God, what God alone can do. And so in trembling, we anticipate him to come and heal our rebellious hearts. We trust God to break through our hard hearts and soften them in his timing and his power and his grace. Even when, especially when, We cannot eviscerate the remnants of that cancer ourselves, the cancer of distrust, of addiction, of bitterness, of anxiety, of doubt. Only He can surgically remove those things. How does this apply? Dear husband or wife, are you trying to manipulate your spouse into repentance? You cannot. Dear parent, are you trying to guilt your child into repentance? It's vanity. Do you have a friend that you'd like to see come to faith? You can't convince them with your words, so pray for them. Pray for God's mercy upon them. Lay like any of us are dead in sin until God quickens their conscience. Now prepare yourself, prepare your family, your friendships by laying out the red carpet for Jesus and certainly have those come-to-Jesus conversations with them and use reason and logic, witness, share, dialogue, serve, love, warn them. But the power of change never relies on your service, your love, or your words. And as much as you'd like to put the fear of God into anyone, only God is capable of doing that. And he's quite good at it, to tell you the truth. So pray, surrender, wait upon him, trust his power to break hard hearts, to create contrite hearts, worshiping hearts. When this king comes, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Salvation won by God, not man. So repentance has a source, the regenerative power of God. Third, repentance has a fruit. Look at verse 7. He said, Therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
bear fruits in keeping with repentance. John calls them a brood of snakes. That's a remarkable thing to say, very politically incorrect. Why would he say that? I mean, maybe he's thinking about the first snake in the garden, and they look similar, always trying to carve out a kingdom for themselves in God's paradise, but inwardly they're just selfish parasites. Have you ever seen a brood of vipers? If, you have ever, if you've ever watched the Indiana Jones movie series, you know what I mean. A brood of snakes that hides in the dark, slimy, intermeshed creatures that slither over each other, snapping at each other. Snakes are merely interested in fleeing the fire, not in a change of heart. They simply want to avoid trouble. But real repentance comes with godly sorrow over sin. And it must not be simply fear of consequences that has no concern over one's offense to others or to a holy God. And so when John looks at the crowd, he questions their frantic activity of fleeing to a religious leader. And John warns them, nothing but true repentance, nothing but a change of heart will be acceptable to this king. Not lip service, Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, not family connections or name dropping. Verse 8, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to make these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Nothing but real repentance for sin is acceptable to this king. In other words, this king has not come to make peace with your rebellious kingdom, but to end it, to transform it, And notice the clarity and sense of urgency he makes, uh, he uses to make his point. Look at verse 9. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Now, I'm no lumberjack, but every Christmas we throw the kids in the van and drive off to a tree farm. And if I were a pine tree, I'd be nervous watching people walking around with saws in hand. Now, realistically, many trees survive that season. However, if you're a pine tree, you know your time is up when the guy in the red flannel jacket gets down on his hands and knees and lays that saw against the trunk. That's the image. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John is serving notice. If you want to prepare yourself for this coming king, repent now. Humble yourself now. Come clean now. Confess it all now. Not partially. Don't hold back. Don't risk that. Don't attempt damage control. Don't spin it. Confess all and repent. Come clean. And the warning could not be more urgent. Don't delay a year, a month, a day, a week, an hour. Do it now. Nothing is more pressing. Your life is at stake. Real repentance entails a sense of urgency along with godly sorrow over sin because it's a change of heart, a change at the root level of a person's fears, desires, and motives. And if you don't sense that change of heart in yourself, confess that to God and ask for a new heart. Pray like King David did. Create in me a new heart, O God. God loves answering that prayer. Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 44, each tree is known by its fruit. A good root yields good fruit, and the good root of repentance yields the fruit of repentance. 
And people in the crowd are cut to the heart by this message. Look at it in verses 10 through 14. The crowd asks, what then shall we do? And even the tax collectors are asking, and the soldiers, which means no one's too far from God. No one's so hardened that they can't be softened by this Holy Spirit of grace. And Jesus gives specific and practical fruit answers. To the crowd, he says, whoever has two tunics, share, and whoever has food, do likewise. And to the tax collectors, he says, collect no more than you're authorized to collect. And to the soldiers, he says, don't extort money by threats or false accusation. Be content with your wages. Notice that Jesus' commands are not unreasonable or excessive, but they are right and true, loving and balanced. And they're also observable. You can see real repentance in the fruit that it bears. Real repentance cannot be hidden. Its fruit is noticeable and necessary. So what does repentance look like in your life in this season? Now, unfortunately, if we're honest with ourselves, you're probably most easily and quickly thinking and identifying what repentance looks like in the lives of loved ones. But let's keep our focus where it should be. If Jesus is king, what does that look like for you in this season of life, practically, personally? How does Jesus' lordship express itself in little day-to-day things, from when people interrupt you at work or cut you off in traffic or jump in front of you at the grocery store? How does this kingship express yourself as you deal with the bigger things of, of being left out or coworkers slandering you or undercutting you or when family members don't appreciate you? How does Jesus' lordship change the way you spend, spend your energy and your money or your use of technology? How does it inform that, your use of mobile devices and entertainment? How does Jesus' lordship cause you to steward your privacy, your private emails, your private texts, your Netflix watching? How does it cause you to steward your body? We're called whatever we eat or drink to do all to the glory of God. Real repentance produces the stuff you can see, fruit, big or small, but it also produces things that you might not see but you can smell. It's an aroma that it leaves upon you and upon others that, that are around you. Real fruitful repentance, you can smell it, and you can't fake it. Jane Hagberg really nails it when she says, this type of repentance entails surrender, surrender of comfort and pride, anger and disappointment. And it means something for each of us. Something is always given up. Usually it's something important to us, maybe even something central to our identity. Maybe we have to give up on the myths myths we hold dear about life and about ourselves or that we grew up with in childhood, that God owes me an explanation for all the suffering I've faced. That's a myth. He can and he certainly may, but he doesn't have to. He never did for Job. Or maybe the myth is parenting should be easier. Or maybe it's follow your heart. That one's a doozy. Or dreams always come true, or you can do anything if you just try hard enough. Or I deserve better, or at least better than they do. See, Janet Orberg illustrates what repentance might look like in various stages of life and for various types of personalities, whether you have a strong ego or you're a self-deprecator or you're someone ridden with guilt and shame or you're an intellectual or you're a high achiever. She writes for intellectuals, maybe repentance means 
learning to accept God's will without feeling the strain of wanting to debate it. I love that. For strong egos, maybe it means surrendering our ego-centeredness for God-centeredness. It's just not about us. And when you repent like that, people may not see it, but they can smell it. For self-deprecators, maybe it means refusing to put God's grace down in your life because you feel so unworthy of it or refusing to complain about the gifts that he's given you. Repent of your self-righteousness. We are all unworthy. For high achievers, maybe it means surrendering to the God who is hemming you in on purpose and frustrating you, not so you run harder, but that so you stop running and learn to rest in what God has achieved for you and what he has proven about himself, not what you can prove about yourself. See, John says, prepare the way of the Lord. And as we do this, it's not just for any king, but for a trustworthy king, one who proves his love and grace. We surrender to a friend of sinners. And that gives us courage, like those in the crowd who were pierced to the heart to ask specific questions What does repentance look like for me? Are you asking? I mean, really asking? Honestly asking what the specific practical fruit looks like? Only to the extent you ask yourself those questions are you taking this call to repentance seriously. And only to the extent you ask those questions for yourself will you ever be qualified or helpful toward others who are asking those questions to you for how they can repent because it will reposition you as a patient, tender, humble friend. Repentance has a direction from self toward God. It has a source. Only God can grant repentance unto life, but it has a fruit. It must work out in personal and practical ways that are observable, and even when you can't observe it, you can still smell it. Lastly, repentance has a promise, a promise of forgiveness of sin, of cleansing of sin and of a distinguished status as you look at verses 15 through 18. See, real repentance guarantees God's forgiveness. When God makes a promise, he never breaks it. And when the debt is paid, it is paid in full. Nothing remains to be paid off. Now, I know a few people who've gotten themselves into real financial trouble. Their debt is out of control. It's snowballing faster than they can pay it off. And that's an apt picture of what all of our debt is like when we stand before a holy God. We accumulate debt in our sinfulness faster than we could ever pay it off. Now, when people sense their debt is out of control, they tend to to live in denial or to run and hide. And similarly, we attempt to run and hide and live in denial before a holy God, but that is a vain effort for sure. But the hope of the gospel... And gospel means good news is that God is not after you as a debt collector, but he is after you as one who has paid for your debt, and that is good news. And so you can stop hiding and running and turn from self to God. That's repentance. Admit your inability to pay off your own debt and instead accept God's payment of your debt on your behalf. And when you repent like that, you can know with certainty that the deal is done for the God to whom you owe the debt is the one who is capable to pay the debt, the only one, and he has promised to do it and he's already done it in Christ. What a grace. What a relief. What a promise. Repentance 
has a promise of forgiveness. Second, cleansing. Look at verse 16. John baptized with water. Water cleanses the outside, but Jesus with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire purifies the inside. The Holy Spirit cleanses the heart. Jesus' cleansing has both a once-for-all nature to it as well as a continuous nature. Repentance happens once and for all when it comes to the forgiveness of sins. But repentance happens over and over again throughout the whole course of life when it comes to the purification of sin. This cleansing fire of purification causes us to rely less on ourselves, our accomplishments, our distractions and status, and more on God. His promises, His ongoing work, His presence among us to define our joy and our security and our identity because He's separating out the old self and creating a new self to get 24 karat gold type of people. Now, do you know what it takes to get 24 karat gold? You need to heat that nugget that you dig out of the mud. Those golden nuggets have all kinds of impurity within carbon-based stuff, iron, dirt. And fire melts the gold and boils the impurities to the surface. That's the dross, and it's, it's skimmed off the surface by the goldsmith. And you do it once, and you get 5-carat gold, and then you heat it hotter the next time, and you get 10-carat gold, and then you keep going. You really blast it at the highest temperature to get the elements that just really cling on to the gold, and to finally to get those to let go and separate. And eventually, through that very painful process, you get what you're after. 24 Carat gold, something pure, so valuable, so beautiful, so useful. And in a similar way, Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire melts self-absorption, self-reliance, self-justification. It brings all that sinful dross to the surface so God can skim it off. Speaking of this purifying fire, Janet Hagberg continues, in this process we come face to face again with God, with God's love that heals our hearts calms our egos, soothes our chaotic wills into submission and lets God direct our lives. And we know joy. Repentance has a promise of forgiveness, of cleansing, and lastly, of distinguished status. In verse 17, there's this winnowing fork image, this threshing floor where you gather wheat into the barn, but the chaff you, you throw away and burn with unquenchable fire. See, because wheat is the thing of value. Chaff is, is the useless dead shell, like peanut shells. And those who repent are restored to a distinguished status. They, they are restored to the full image of God. They are made holy and different. They are lifted up. And that change is progressive, and it gets better and better and better. And fire, see, it's not only used to purify gold, but to mold it to make it beautiful, to turn it into things like jewelry and platters and crowns. And when Jesus baptizes with fire and the Holy Spirit, he makes you soft and moldable for his greater purpose. And like a goldsmith, he turns that pure 24 chunk into a beautiful work of art that adorns his creation. It gives new meaning to the hymn, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. May that be the prayer of all of our hearts this morning. Let us pray. God, thank you for sending John, the prophet, after this long time of silence to prepare your people 
to repent so they might be forgiven and cleansed and restored to full glory. Father, thank you for teaching us and reminding us that repentance has a direction, not to turn inward to ourself, but to turn to you. And it has a source. We need to turn to you because only you can change us, only you can soften us. So I pray for anyone here who is feeling that hard heart, feeling that call to repentance, but knows they can't do it. Oh God, overcome them by the power of your spirit. Draw them to yourself. Burn within them until they yield and know your life-giving spirit. And Lord, we know repentance comes with fruit and it's the fruit you bear. It's, It's observable. Sometimes we see it. Sometimes we can only smell it. But it is a good and lasting fruit. And we thank you for the promise that we have and for in, in repentance that you forgive all. And when you have, it's done. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.